Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me this week is Kate Turner. Kate, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Now, listeners of the show will probably remember Kate as a a former candidate for state representative. She ran in Oldham County and part of Jefferson County. She was on the show like once or twice uh, when you were running. And, you know, you were great. People loved you. People love you all across town. Uh, You have since kind of like become the Kentucky politics TikTok star. So, you know, we figured... (laughs) While Jasmine is gone this week, why not have Kate Turner join us? I am I'm so excited to be here. Um, I recently uh, made a TikTok saying that I was formally not running again next year. So I do just want to put that out there for your listeners. But I am so excited to use the platform that I have to continue to talk about Kentucky politics. It's something that is still very near and dear to my heart. So um, I am so when you asked, I, I was pumped to to step into uh, Jasmine's very impressive shoes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's nuts that that platform just has so many people on it all the time. And I mean, you you grew such a large following when you were running, and, and so did a lot of other people. And you know, it's sad to watch an asset like that go away. I'm glad you're making use of it to tell the people what they need to know. It's a very important part of town, and it's a very uh, it's a very good a good service that you're providing. And we're we're gonna get the long form here. It's it's not a TikTok. It's not three minutes long. It's a full <laughs> podcast. We're here to talk about stuff. So Kate Turner is here to talk to us today about, first of all, dueling education plans that were released. Daniel Cameron and Andy Bashir both released their education plan this week. Um, so we are gonna talk about that. The next thing we wanna talk about is this story that came out in the Daily Beast last week about some harassment issues going on in Daniel Cameron's AG office. Um, I read about this in the Daily Beast and have not really seen it picked up very much locally. So definitely wanted to talk about that as well. And then we have a few quick hits. So without any further ado, let's get started by talking about these education plans. All right. So both Daniel Cameron and Andy Bashir revealed their education plans over the past week. And they're kind of similar. I guess they kind of share some similar themes. They're about education. That's true. Um, But there are lots of differences between the two. So I'm going to talk about Daniel Cameron's first. Okay. So it's it's called the uh, Cameron Catch-Up Plan. And its introduction and kind of first piece talks about Andy Bashir's COVID-19 plans, calling them, quote, reckless and draconian. So I guess first question, Kate, do you (laughs) feel like Andy Bashir's COVID-19 plan was reckless and draconian? Well, considering, you know, how well Kentucky actually got through the pandemic, particularly compared to other states in comparable regions. Um, I think that that's kind of a ridiculous uh, assessment right off the bat. Um, I do want to note, though, here, like hilariously, that this that this plan is called the catch up plan, considering, you know, how far behind Cameron actually is in the polls here. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, I really don't know that that's what I would call my plan if I was behind <laughs> in the bones during an election. Um, my signature plan, but, um, you know, I don't think you get to become the Republican nominee uh, in Kentucky without having a couple of uh, missteps and comms. That's very <laughs> true. That's very true. Now, I mean, I don't, I don't think we need to harp too much about, like, COVID and the, the you know, districts of the state's education uh, approach to to COVID, but I mean, you know, I'm here in Louisville, and and I think like most people here like had like the reaction to COVID that they did. It doesn't play too much of a uh, you know a, a role in the daily lives of the decision making, and most people have kind of moved past it here. But it's definitely yeah, Bashir country here, right? It's a district that that we expect Andy Bashir to win by a whole lot. You spend a lot of time in Oldham County, I think. You know, you're domiciled there in Oldham County. I don't mm-hmm. know if you are still, but yeah, okay, you are. Uh, I mean, is it any different there? Do people are people thinking or talking about education and COVID still, or is he just like holding on to the only thing he has here? Um, I would definitely say from the conversations that I've had with folks that this is not something that is top of mind for people. Um, this was also something that was like universally, we all just needed to deal with at the same time. I mean, there were, I mean, do you remember like these daily briefings that even Donald Trump had to be a part of? And even he put on a mask eventually because that, I mean, this was something that was so universal for so many people, I think to, kind of silo the blame onto like a singular person is just really like not particularly effective messaging at all. Yeah, you know, there I, I wonder about this. I just don't think I, I think that they really thought they would have a good issue here. And I just don't think it's worked out quite the way they thought it would with this. But they are certainly doubling down, um, doing everything they can to uh, to talk about it more. 
All right, let's leave the COVID stuff here and talk about the guts of the actual plan. So Daniel Cameron's plan, um, he's got three big kind of like categories under his Cameron catch-up plan. The first is an after-school and summer instruction plan. The next is a, something that I'll call the classroom environment plan. And the last is what he's calling getting more resources into classroom. So the first piece, the after school and summer instruction, I, you know, honestly, it doesn't seem that bad. It seems like, yeah, yeah it's a 16 week tutoring program for math and reading. It's going to, he, he wants to work with state universities and professionals, people that work in, you know, the field and everything and pay teachers an extra stipend for the help that they would provide, um, you know, help kids catch up. I mean, it, there are always kids behind in grade level, just no, no matter what happens. It's a fact, of the, fact of the matter. And we got to catch those kids up. I, I think that there are some plans like this in place, but a new, well-funded, state-operated program like this would be a good thing. If he could, if he ca actually cared and wanted to do this, it yeah. would it would be overall overall a good thing. Yeah, you you, you agree? Yeah, That's I good. Yeah. Objectively, a net positive for sure. That kind of uh, that concept. Um, but I will say that, and I know that we'll get into this as we continue to chat. But this this plan feels very like reactive and not proactive about what's going on right like this is this is uh having extra tutoring is like a very reactive solution to a problem that is clearly systemic right and while objectively again there's nothing wrong with that um it's it's kind of like you know the uh the ideas where people say well why don't we just have more student teachers in buildings when we don't have teachers to begin with you know like it's a band-aid it's not an actual solution you're absolutely right it is it does feel a little bit reactive to me for sure uh but i think my bigger criticism of it is it's just bereft of detail it is just yeah. like uh we're gonna have a plan how are you gonna fund it where's the money gonna come from uh, what professions are you going to work with? You're working with state universities. Absolutely. Which ones? Which programs inside those universities? And yeah, I mean, it's 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 a campaign plan. It, it, it's it's just an idea that you're throwing out there. But if you want us to take it seriously, some more details would certainly be uh, would be valuable there. Absolutely. And actually, uh, to that point, I have a very good friend who was a teacher, um, or who is is a teacher that I was incredibly close with when I graduated from college, and he went from a public school to a charter school that only hired um, Teach for America um, teachers. Yes. And so when we're talking about non-education credentialed um, people being in classrooms with students, I think we really need to talk about um, the gap there in terms of how people who have not been formally trained in education are at handling, particularly children who are um, have you know, have fewer resources than others, right? You've got kids that do not know how to deal with um, their anger, their frustration, their um, feeling of like not being well taken care of. And they're in these environments with people who don't have any background in um, social work. And they tend to not be very effective at, at helping kids that are going through something. Yeah, and actually that provides a really nice transition to the next piece of Daniel Cameron's plan, which is what I've termed the classroom environment category. And I find this the most problematic of his pl platform plans. So this section focuses on discipline, putting more cops in schools, and, and truancy. So all of those are problematic at best. So the, the details of this plan mean more kids are going to get suspended, meaning, uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the eff efficacy of suspension or the purpose of suspension over time, but I, uh, over the past several years, but I, I am definitely on the side of things, people who think that it serves no purpose. It sends kids home away from school um, who are causing problems, who ha have issues that they need to that they need to deal with, and they need to um, have people in the school uh, help help them take care of, and uh, and it just sends them away from the school into an environment where they mostly are unsupervised and can kind of get away with whatever they want. And then they come back and are expected to behave better. I, it's just, it just doesn't yeah. serve any purpose. It does send them away, uh, I guess, to kind of like free up the classroom from, from their presence, but I'm not quite sure um, if that's, that's really effective at, at solving any real problem. So um, that would be one of the first things that this plan brings back. Uh, it would put more cops in schools. Okay, first of all, this is already a law. There's already a law that says there's supposed to be a cop in every school. It's not funded. Again, not a lot of plans here for how they're going to fund putting a cop in every school or putting more cops in schools or whatever. I understand that they think that that's going to solve all the problems. There are real issues with 
police presence in schools. Um, there's edu- there's like a lot of research into this. There's a lot of anecdotal and uh, just kind of like testimonial evidence towards that that, that I'm familiar with and I'm sure you are as well. Um, but even if they wanted to do it, they got to have to pay for it. It's not like they're going to change the law. The law is already there. The issue is paying for it. No information about how they're going to do that. And then this thing called chronically absent students being put back into school. Sounds great. I think it would be wonderful if we could address our truancy issues. But the lever in which we have to pull to solve our truancy issues is typically putting kids' parents in jail. Uh, And that is not really effective at solving the problems that these kids face. Kids are truant typically because, you know, uh, there's lots of reasons. But, but, you know, a lot of times they have problems with their families that, you know, their, their parents you know, can't hold down a job, have trouble holding down a job. And let me tell you what, getting put in jail because your kids didn't make it to school is not going to help you stabilize your home environment. So the levers that we have to pull for this truancy issue typically are not really conducive to improving school behavior or the classroom experience. Now, Daniel Cameron may have a, a, a novel, interesting, cool plan for dealing with truancy. He did not tell us what it was. He just said he was going <laughs> to solve truancy. I'm just repeating what typically this means throughout the uh, throughout the country over the past forever but yeah a lot of problems with this uh what do you think about it i mean i think that anything that narrows the path from the school to prison pipeline is just a horrific policy to begin with um police officers um i think that it is incredibly important that we have people on site in schools who can deal with kids who are a threat to either other children or staff in the building. Like that is absolutely something that needs to be addressed. Um, But I think that the problem is, is just throwing um, people like police officers at this, so at this situation doesn't necessarily make kids who are going through this feel like they're actually safer, like they're actually being taken care of. Their um, social emotional learning is not being addressed at all. These kids are not being told that they're valuable. They're being told that they're bad and that they're in trouble. And that those value lessons stick with kids and continue to push them down the school to prison pipeline much faster. Um, and my personal experience with police officers in school, um, when I was in high school, our police officer made a habit of dating young women that were uh, young girls. Who that's were not great. In, yeah, that's a, that's in, a real in, problem. Who were students. Um, and inappropriate relationships between uh, officers and students is something is something that happens a lot more often than people like to think about. Um, and there isn't really a great structure for uh, discipline for the officers who are involved in these situations. Um, so, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of problems with with dealing with police misconduct, and we put police in schools and they misbehave. It is different than a teacher who you like most of them who engage in that kind of behavior get fired and go to prison. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, the last leg of Cameron's platform includes includes raises for teachers. That's good. Um, it support better supports uh, includes better supports for mid-career and experienced teachers retention in the teaching uh, you know industry and retention of teachers is a real struggle so that's also a good thing Um, and then it also talks quite a bit about cutting red tape and administrative bloat now you know some of it's good I feel like the administrative bloat and red tape stuff is a little mixed all of it's lacking in detail right that's kind of the issue what are you going to do to raise teacher pay what are you going to do to support mid and late career teachers it's the the plan itself is just a few pages long so we I, i don't know i don't know what the plan is and whenever you hear like cutting red tape and administrative bloat um that might mean you know, cutting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's at least a yellow flag for me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, there is, there's almost always, you know, administrative bloat red tape that exists somewhere, but whenever you cut it, you run the risk of cutting stuff that is more important than you think it is. Um, and, and being yeah. able to thread that needle is really, really difficult. Uh, and it's tough to do without reducing services. So, um, any thoughts there about the third leg of Daniel Cameron's plan, Kate? Yeah, I I just wanted to say and to kind of elaborate on your point about red tape and administrative bloat, I find those to be like mean nothing buzzwords from, you know, to your point, folks who don't have a plan. Um, And something that I think that is really important to stress that I think that does not get talked about enough, public servants at any level should absolutely be held to a high level of scrutiny and accountability. No, you know, you, you won't get any pushback from me on that. But that being said, 
these are people who are responsible for millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars in budgets. Um, you know, you look at Jefferson County Schools, you got 96,000 students, someone who's responsible for that number of bodies and the number of people that it takes to make sure that those bodies, you know, are in the right places, they're being, they're learning the things that they're supposed to, the amount of money that is involved. You need someone who is capable of doing that. And you can't retain talent that is capable of managing that kind of scope unless you are compensating them. Because that same role in the private sector is going to be making two to three times what uh, you know administrators would be making in the public school environment. Um, and that's across the board, not just for education, but also when you're talking about um, public service of any kind. Um, so I, I think that it, I, I I get my antennas go up a little bit when I hear people using those terms um, because I think it really discredits the the level of experience and skill that it takes to be in administrative positions. Um, and uh, I think it really shortchanges um, the value of having someone who's qualified in those positions as well. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I think a lot of times we depend on people being like passionate about kids or passionate mm -hmm. about teaching or whatever to, to carry mm -hmm. us through. And of course, there is a lot of that. Um, and, and I would think that almost everybody that does that job has that passion. But the thing is, if you get paid that much more to go to a job where you are maybe less passionate about what you're doing, it's tough for that person to say no, right? No matter how passionate they are. And and so to get people Absolutely. who are good at it uh, and worth it, you, you do have to compensate them. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when you hire a middle manager, they are creating efficiencies. You just can't always see them. And so getting rid of them just makes it more expensive and it would have just been better to, to keep them in the first place. Um, Absolutely. All right. That's enough about Daniel Cameron's plan. Let's switch gears <laughs> a little bit and talk about Andy Bashir. He also in, in unveiled his education plan as part of his executive budget. This is kind of a weird situation. So he actually went forward and released his executive budget way ahead of schedule. This typically happens at the beginning of the year after the election uh, and, and typically, typically is accompanied by an address that the governor makes to the legislature. It's carried on KET. Everybody kind of watches it. It says, what's the governor's budget look like? Last time in a budget cycle, the legislature completely undercut Andy Bashir by releasing their legislative budget, as like HB1, like it is every budget year, uh, before the governor had a chance to do his, you know, executive budget, which was way out of custom and just went to show how little the legislature thought of Andy Bashir. And like when they talk about partnering together and, you know, Andy Bashir doesn't call us, whatever, that's the thing they say often. Hey, maybe don't engage in this type of behavior. The, the relationship's pretty broken. Um, but Andy Bashir did want to go first, and uh, he did this. He released his executive budget here, uh, you know, five, six months ahead of schedule. I say it was completely broken. It's not totally broken. He's been able to get a lot of his priorities through the legislature, but I will say that the leadership doesn't seem to like him very much. Okay, uh, that being said, uh, we'll leave that aside, that, that piece of the story. <laughs> Let's talk about the actual guts of the plan. The governor proposes a 17% increase in SEEK funding. And that's uh, to 517.5 million is the new number. Seek funding is the core of Kentucky's education funding, and Governor Bashir proposes a hefty increase to get us closer to where our inflation-adjusted spending levels were in the past. Every year, every budget, the Republicans talk about as how it's the highest seek number ever. But of course, inflation happens every year. Uh, last year, it was quite a bit. You know, it's like eight or nine percent every other year. When it's really low, it's still one to two percent or three to four percent or whatever um and as that number goes up if the seek number doesn't go up with it we're actually spending less overtime that is what we've been doing this increase we get us closer to where we were in the past in terms of our inflation adjusted spending on education the budget also includes 175 million dollars in new transportation funding that's an 81 percent increase and desperately needed as somebody who lives in louisville and jefferson county and has had a lot of parents freaking out uh in my neighborhood my friends uh are really worried about their kids all the time uh that we need this educate we need this transportation funding funding we'll talk about that later on in the show but we i think everybody knows how much we need more transportation funding uh, i will mention nowhere in daniel cameron's plan did he say the word seek um, that seems bad. I, this is the type of detail that I'm talking about. This is like, yeah. hey, this is where the money is coming from, and here is the formula that we're using to, to create it. Here's the amount of revenue extra that we're creating. Um, you like this idea? You like this plan? How does it sound so far? 
Yeah. Um, so I know that this is a podcast about Kentucky politics, but I'm just going to throw back to the old presidential cycle here for just a second. This plan reminds me of when um, Elizabeth Warren was campaigning <laughs> and everyone was asking her plan. Everyone was asking her plan. And then she actually like put one out that works and it had the numbers in it for um, healthcare. And this that this plan really reminds me of that sentiment in that you know, it's not just platitudes. It's not just concepts or ideas. These are actual hard numbers that are taking the, 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 the general fund that actually exists, the largest surplus that Kentucky has ever had in our history and applies it in a way that is really going to impact Kentucky teachers. Um, and something that it, on my TikTok that comes up a lot, comments that I'll get when I talk about um, how, uh, how bad the funding has been in inflationary terms. I get a lot of pushback from people saying, well, I didn't get a raise for inflationary costs. Um, and I think it's really important to point out that public servants are on a completely different pay scale than anyone who's working in the private sector. And so you have an opportunity when you're in the private sector for raises of all different kinds at different times of the year, whenever. The only time that teachers are ever going to get a raise is when the legislature actually puts their mind to it and executes it. So if it doesn't happen here, it's not going to happen. And that's why since 2008, we've been talking about these cuts. They really have been cuts that have impacted teachers and when, we, when we're talking about scale, too, I think it's really important to point out, um, I love doing this, pulling up old data sets, 1990, the uh, uh, minimum beginning salary for teachers in Kentucky was $19,000. If you plug that into an inflation calculator today, that's $45,000 a year of buying power. Oldham County Public Schools, their starting salary for teachers is $34,000 a year. When you're talking about less than six figures, that difference is huge. That inflationary gap there, that is the difference between someone being able to get an apartment for their family or not. That is the difference between them being able to, um, you know, honestly buy groceries and just basic like cost of living things. And so I think to dismiss it and ignore it as though it's not a big deal, um, our kids are the ones that are paying for it. And our next generation of Kentuckians are the ones paying for it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's totally correct when you talk about, uh, like, I think it's so important to think, you know, whenever you're in the, the private sector, you switch jobs a lot. Like, I've switched jobs, like, mm -hmm. three or four times, you know, and I, I did it because I got a better offer or whatever. When you're a teacher, when you're a, a, a you know, a, a, a water company worker, when you are, you know, a, a crossing guard when you uh yeah. do whatever job you do like public if you, servant yeah any kind if you if you do that like your your pay is set it's a completely different system you know there are levels they call them what they are they're like here's the level here's when you go to this level and you have this much experience you pay into a pension it's just fundamentally different than than what i'm used to and what a lot of other people are used to that's such an important point um and and, and yes it is important that the people who set the salaries for these things increase them because i mean we have such a problem like with the teacher shortage that there are people in like in classroom like kids in classrooms that don't have teachers there, oh go ahead <laughs> there, there, there are kids uh who you know that don't have subs when their regular teacher isn't there and have to just like have a teacher come and sit with them basically and not even teach them during their planning period like it is it, it's a big mess a lot of places and that is because we aren't compensating teachers the way that we used to also in 1990 a lot of times a teacher salary was like the second salary in a family um nowadays right. Like there's a lot of people who need to have like that be their main salary. Um, it's it's the expectation now that uh, families have two working parents, and you know it was like, hey, it's nice to have uh, a mom working or a second parent working in the in the home. Like that is just you have to have that now uh, to to get by. So it is just a completely different world than we were living in, and and our systems need to adjust, and they haven't uh, before. Uh, this plan by Andy Bashir, I think, gets us a little closer to that reality. Uh, anything else to say about that prong of the plan, the revenue piece? Um, just that to, to add to um, teachers missing in classrooms, I really want to emphasize that uh, I'm still very active in a lot of the school, I'm um, sorry, a lot of the, the forums for Oldham County parents and um, Oldham County high schools are missing physics teachers and biology teachers and language teachers right now. They have kids that are taking physics over Zoom 
because they don't have teachers that can teach it to them in person. Um, I'm an engineer. I took those classes um, and I took those classes sometimes over the summer. There is no way as a high school student, I would have been able to learn or take physics over Zoom. I would have absolutely failed um, and I wouldn't have been able to focus the way that one needs to in order to comprehend, uh, you know, real STEM education, right? Yeah. Um, so we're not we're not even talking about um, we're, we're talking about critical teaching positions here. Um, I think that, yeah, that's good. Uh, that's correct. I think that that's right. It would be really hard to learn those things over. I did a bad job learning physics uh, in a regular classroom. Um, yeah, yeah, that that Same. was a, a struggle for me for sure. Uh, I, I became a social studies uh, major in, in college after doing math and science in high school. It's like, not not for me. So yeah, I couldn't imagine having to do it over, over Zoom. That would be tough. Um, okay, that's the revenue piece, but the, the revenue piece going up means that there would be also opportunities to do other exciting things in our education system. And I think the most exciting thing is Governor Bashir proposes universal pre-K for all four-year-olds and also full-day kindergarten across the whole state. That's going to cost $172 million a year. That would be a huge improvement. Uh, I think we would really see the benefits of pre-K if we did three mm -hmm. and four-year-olds. Of course, that's when you really unlock the the, the power of, of pre-K. You really get kids mm -hmm. in there early. Uh, you, you start identifying issues earlier. You start helping kids that really uh, have additional needs faster. And also, you, you, you start uh, – to really get kids uh, a head start so that when they get into school, they're ready to learn and can really, the, the rocket ship takes off. Um, mm -hmm. my, my state representative, Josie Raymond, calls pre-K the silverest bullet we have uh, to combat mm -hmm. all of the social ills from, from violence to drugs to jobs to all of it. Pre-K is a solution to all, a long-term solution to all of those problems. This would be a big step forward. I wish there was more, but this is a great, great step forward. Anything about the universal mm -hmm. pre-K piece you want to talk about? Only that I wish I had a foghorn to tell you how excited <laughs> I was about <laughs> about this plan. Um, UPenn did a study that I think was put out last year, the year before, about how every dollar that gets put into early childhood development and early childhood education nets back has an ROI of anywhere between four and nine dollars. Um, this is the best ROI that we could have on any service, um, and I think. Uh, something that that I do want to mention here that doesn't get mentioned isn't enough is how much of a hamper not having these services is on our economic development and growth. Um, if you've got a safe place to send your kids that you know that they're going to be okay so that you can go and do other things, whether that's work or just be a normal human and have some space to where your kid can be that you know is going to be safe and you don't have to pay out of pocket for it, that is biggest economic stimulus that we could ever give to people in Kentucky, to families. I mean, it, it's just really unmatched. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about this proposal. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how excited to be. I think a lot of this is pretty much, you know, dead on arrival in the legislature. But I, <laughs> you know, Andy Bashir really surprised me last year. We got, you know, sports gambling through we got uh, medical marijuana through. I think universal pre-K is another one of those types of issues that, like, Republicans generally get it. They understand the mm -hmm. value of it. It's it's not a lot of other issues that they just don't understand. I think that this is one of those ones that I am tentatively, uh, you know, potentially thinking about being optimistic about. Uh, I'm not quite there yet, but like I said, like, if anybody can do it, it would be Andy Bashir, And it really is, I think, a responsible, smart plan. I wish it was more, but I think he has a good sense of about what's possible. So you know what? Let's let's make it happen. So that's the universal pre-K piece. Another major component of the Bashir plan is 11% across the board raises for all school employees. The, that includes teachers, um, and that would be the first identified pay increase in a state budget since 2006. Um, you mentioned before about how teacher pay works. Of course, uh, the, the legislature provides the money and the districts decide how to spend it. So, every, you know, many districts have seen increases in, in salaries based on their own, um, you know, budgets that they put forward. But this is a identified raise in the budget for employees of school systems, which is not something that has been seen since 2006. We talked about this in the revenue piece already, but desperately needed. Glad to see it's in there. Yeah, I think... Um, something that I 
do want to highlight here is that the state portion of the SEEK formula um, has either stayed stagnant or if you look at inflationary dollars has decreased significantly, right? Um, there are a lot of places, and I know in Oldham County, where there is a sentiment that their local taxes have been have increased significantly over the past several years. And that is to make up for the shortfall that the legislature has cut, right? And so there are people that are rightly upset about what they are paying into and they're not receiving the services that they're used to. Their schools are not as reliable as they used to be. Their buses are not as reliable as they used to be. And so um, I, I think that it's critical to really recognize that this is the duty of the legislature. Um, and, you know, if you're feeling like you're paying more into a system and you're not getting what you used to, it's because the state has defunded the programs that they used to fund. You're doing the Lord's work of explaining the components of the SEEK formula to the general population. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 what we need our, our elected officials to be doing. But you know what? We, we just we just have the people that we have. So there you go. Um, OK, um, the, the last piece of the, the uh, plan, which is robust, it's a multi page plan. There's a lot in there. The last piece that I wanted to talk about was higher education. Another thing that Daniel Cameron did not talk about in his plan and Bashir's plan includes a 12 percent increase in funding for higher education. Um, we have talked a lot about how the overall funding for uh, K through 12 has not kept up with inflation. Higher education has been all just absolutely decimated to the point where it is unrecognizable from even when I was in college. I don't know when you were in college, probably around the same time. I don't know. I don't know if you went to school in Kentucky. Um, I, I did, but it is uh, it is just totally different the way that it's funded, the way that they pay for the things there at the school. Um, and, and I remember when I was in school, so I, I, I entered University of Kentucky mm -hmm. fall of 2005. And I remember going in and the first thing they said was like, our funding has been decimated over the past decade. And that was nothing compared to where it is now. So, you know, this 12% is not going to get us anywhere close to where we were before. Um, but we have a huge hole to dig out of. And it is nice to see uh, somebody wanting to turn the corner here on higher mm -hmm. education funding, something that's desperately needed. I mean, uh, we have yet to see this is the sort of like drastic measures that were taken this week in, in West Virginia that cut like 80 mm -hmm. majors or something like that. Um, They're doing a huge budget reduction plan uh, in, in that state, but but they can't be that far behind us um, if we continue down the path that we're going. And it's nice to see uh, somebody running for governor that wants to reverse that situation. Anything about the higher education piece, Kate? Um, absolutely. Yeah. So I, uh, just for your listeners, I attended university of Maryland. So I was, oh, I was in, Boo -terps. Uh, <laughs> I was a terrapin. Yeah. Um, I was not, uh, I was not at a school in Kentucky, but I, I think, um, I think it's important to note too, that not only has funding for universities in Kentucky and secondary education been demolished, um, it's been used as a cudgel by legislators. It's been, it's been held up as a threat and, um, I don't know if listeners will remember uh, that my opponent, Jason Nemus, he actually threatened to um, to impact the the state funding to University of Louisville because of the their work with the women's clinic that is in Louisville. And he he implied that it would be contingent upon um, the the university, the medical school continuing to work with the um, emergency women's clinic. So, you know, not only has it been decreased, it's been used as either a carrot or a stick by legislators at their whim, um, which is obviously, you know, impacts how these schools are able to plan their budgets and plan their, um, you know, how they're going to um, allocate funds. Um, so yeah, it's it's great to see this highlighted. Um, and I'm happy that it's in there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely it's, it's definitely something that needs to change. Glad to hear that we're on the same page there. All right, wrapping all of this up. While there are some decent parts of Daniel Cameron's budget, you know, if he's elected governor, we need to hold his feet to the fire on this, uh, you know, this, this summer program and on these teacher raises. Um, those are good pieces of his plan. Um, Andy Bashir's is a much more appropriate budget for Kentucky's education system. And that's why... He's a better choice. <laughs> uh, the, pan the pandemic did did hurt student learning across the whole country, um, and big investments are really needed to fix those problems. And, and Daniel Cameron's plan is really quick to point out that Andy Bashir was governor during the pandemic, but it's extremely telling that his plan doesn't even mention the core SEEK formula or how much investment he wants to make into public schools. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
some good elements, but it's a pretty empty plan. It's not a serious plan. Andy Bashir has a whole budget. He has a big plan about what specifically he wants to do. Um, I think that it's really clear which one is is the better plan. But at the end of the day, you know, if the electors choose Daniel Cameron, there are some pieces there that are worth it um, that that we can use to to you know as as basis for for what we can uh, advocate for moving forward. Uh, anything to say in, in in closing here, Kate? Um, I think that, that that's a really good uh, summary of the, the two plans. I mean, I could probably talk about this stuff for... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do think it is a little bit telling that Daniel Cameron's plan also doesn't include any language about vouchers, has been like a core piece of the Republican formula for a very, very long time. But I think they finally realized that one's a loser. So they left it uh, by the wayside. So, um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I do, I do think it is important to note, though, that recently with this, uh, you know, uh, bus disaster that happened in Jefferson County, that the Republican legislature and those that represent Jefferson County have publicly stated that they would like to do a state takeover of Jefferson County Public oh, yeah. Schools. They want to split um, us up into like six districts or something. So that's mm-hmm. going to be going to be yes. bad. Yes. And there was not language in their statement specifically about vouchers, but there was about school choice. And school choice often includes uh, vouchers as part of that program. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if while they're not openly campaigning on the idea of vouchers, um, it is definitely part of uh, what the Republican platform has been in other states that are going through very similar battles with their legislature um, that um, have followed the same pattern of defunding a public service so much that it becomes unreliable and people get frustrated, um, citizens get frustrated, and then the GOP does a miraculous messaging job of taking that frustration and anger and uh, turning it into um, a private solution um, like vouchers um, that end up defunding the system even more. Yep. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I used to, uh, there are not really that many conservative Democrats left, but I used to be like, I used to think that conservative Democrats wanted to be responsible and and fund the system that we have with less dollars and do more with less, which is not something I agree with, but significantly better than conservative Republicans who just want to take the money out of public systems and give it to uh, private hands. So um, not really an anecdote I get to share that much anymore because the conservative democrats are mostly gone but uh that was the old difference all right let's move on a little bit and talk about daniel cameron's office and its accusations of harassment okay so roger sollenberger who is a writer for the daily beast that's a national publication uh it's you know it's subscriber only but this article is available for people to read he's been writing quite a bit about kentucky republicans don't know why i like it though um he's published several articles about jamie comer uh, i think a lot of times the local writers the the folks here in the state kind of treat jamie comer with kid gloves because um jamie zollenberger makes him look like an idiot and uh you know he kind of is uh, you know he he's got he, he he acts like an idiot sometimes um so jamie zollenberger wrote a lot of stories about jamie comer and he's also wrote about daniel cameron's campaign uh, a few times. So so the first thing he kind of wrote about Daniel Cameron was about him taking money from a recovery center that his office is investigating. Uh, mm-hmm. Jasmine and I talked about that back in June when that one broke. I felt like that was a pretty big deal. It came at the same time as Andy Bashir had a different sort of weird campaign finance thing going on. So those things kind of canceled each other out, I think, maybe a little bit. But this week, Sollenberger wrote a piece detailing accusations that multiple members of Daniel Cameron's attorney general's office engaged in harassment and behavioral that the article describes as hostile, cruel, threatening, and demeaning. Those are all words that the article itself uses. So the two staff members at the center of this Daily Beast article are Vic Maddox and Jeffrey Cross. Sollenberger uses anonymous quotes from people within the AG's office who accused Maddox of, quote, deliberately withholding information from a reporter about Cameron's recusal from a major case, unquote. That was the Pesomatic lawsuit about gray machines. Um, so that's bad. And also said that Cross, quote, made several people cry hysterically and seek mental health assistance to deal with the toxic and hostile work environment, unquote. Um, and then also there's other people quoted that go on to say that several people have quit because of Cross. The article has lots of other accusations, including accusations that the director of the Office of the Attorney General's Cybercrimes Unit used intoxicants off-duty, which I'm not quite sure what that means, but it sounds bad. Um, and also, quote, captured zoomed-in photos of a detective's breasts, which that constitutes sexual harassment. So that is not, not great. That's very bad. Uh, 
There is no public documentation of any actions that were actually taken by the Attorney General's office in response to these allegations, except for one finding that the cybercrimes person, quote, should be reprimanded, unquote. Mm-hmm. That, of course, does not mean that they were recommended, just that they should be. Um, I don't know. This seems yeah. pretty explosive to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't really read that much or heard that much about it. I haven't heard people talking about it, really. I mean, why? What's going on here? This is this is bad, yeah. right? I think that this is, again, emblematic of Daniel Cameron really not thinking things through and having a plan. Like, I think that toxic work environments are, there's a potential for toxic work environments to be everywhere, like across party lines, public, private sector. It can be, you know, um, that's that that can be universal. Um, but again, you know, the, the through line here to me is that the education plan doesn't have any teeth to it. It doesn't have any real data to it. It did. It's not. It's. It's very poorly put together. It's not well thought out. And this, to me, feels like someone managing their campaign who feels that they are an anointed son rising into this role, um, and that they don't really need to worry about the uh, environment that their campaign is is taking. Um, which, you know, people who are good leaders who lead from the top, sm- get this stuff take care of it, nip it in the bud. They make sure that, that this never sees, not only never sees the light of day, but they just never even have, there, there's no uh, two, three strikes about behavior like this. Because if you're a leader and you're campaigning to be a leader, you make sure that people that are working for you feel comfortable. And it is so clear that there's not even a single thought being put into any of this if this is what the Daily Beast is, you know, picking up and writing about. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. there were some really good quotes in here from Greg Stumbo, of course, himself a former AG, um, you know, uh, investigated sitting governor, was a really explosive AG when he did the job, just about like stuff like this floating to the top and, and uh, like your responsibility as the the office holder to the situation where you really have to do something about it. Like it may not have been you that were accused, but you're responsible for the reaction to it. And, and this, the narrative that I think people want to paint the negative image of daniel cameron that people want to paint is one of like kind of an airhead doesn't really know what's going on doesn't have a lot of control Mm -hmm. over his own office and basically just like has been handpicked by mitch mcconnell because he's a black republican um he's young he has a good you know uh, played football for uofl like has the has the stature of somebody who would look like a good Republican governor. Um, so they're just going to put him there, and then there's just no substance there. And I think this kind of leans into that explanation in a big way. Like, I, I know I don't know Daniel Cameron. Maybe he's a great manager. I, I don't think that there's a lot of evidence for that, and I think, like, stories like this make it seem like that negative image that, you know, his political opponents want to point him out to be uh, seems like it has some some grounding in truth here. So... Yeah, but but also overall just like really sucks for the people that work in the office of the attorney general. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, being yeah. being a we, we talked about the structure of, of state of, of government jobs already once. But like the structure of that, that office is you have merit employees and you have political employees. And of course, these two people that are perpetuating this harassment, according to the, the story are our political appointees they are like allies of the attorney general and they are managing merit employees who got their jobs because they are qualified and um you know are attorneys and that kind of stuff so um, <laughs> being being a uh being a merit employee being managed by a non-merit employee is already a very difficult situation um and yeah they just are they're just that that's just a really really tough place to be so i feel really really bad for them uh, no, I fully agree with your sentiment there. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's all that. Hopefully that gets picked up by some more people. I hope hopefully I hear some more people talking about it. It seems like it's big news. It's something that we probably should discuss since this guy's running to be the governor of the whole state. That's a much bigger job with a much bigger staff. If you do poorly with a uh, little, you will likely do poorly with a lot. So, all right, moving on. Uh, quick hits. Um, after an extended break, uh, JCPS buses started back on Friday. Um, elementary and middle school kids went to school on Friday. High school kids started on Monday, which is yesterday as of the day that we are recording. The last students got dropped off just a little bit before 8 p.m. That's about a two-hour improvement over what it was uh, when they started the first time. Still pretty late, but that is much more in line with like early in the year things are as as people learn more about their routes they will figure them out 
um, we talked a lot more about this last week. I really encourage everybody to go back and listen to Jasmine and I talk a little bit about this, uh, the busing situation in, in Louisville last week. But, um, you know, hopefully we're on the path to something that's a little better than what we've seen in the years before. Um, but really, I mean, it's going to take something like the 81% increase in transportation funding that Andy Bashir has in his mm-hmm. budget to make uh, a big difference in this. Uh, we're trying to get blood from a turnip. Kate, I know you've been talking about this a lot. Do you have anything to talk about with this JCPS transportation issue while it's on the table here? Uh, I'm sure that uh, you and Jasmine discussed this last week, but I do think it's so important to highlight that by law, the legislature is supposed to be fully funding transportation for public schools in Kentucky, and they are not. Um, The way that the law is written includes the word notwithstanding, so it is not easily enforceable. I've had a lot of questions come in from people who are watching my TikToks about whether or not a lawsuit would benefit the situation. Um, Because of the way that the law is written, it is very difficult to enforce. There there really is not a, a case to be made. Unfortunately, I'm not a lawyer, but that's the um, my understanding of it. Um, but the, the the legislature is not fully funding transportation as required by law. Um, and in addition to that, um, I actually spent a decent amount of time with the Teamsters when I was campaigning, which is the union that represents JCPS bus drivers. And um, I went to a Teamsters event uh, while I was campaigning that was supposed to be like a meet and greet with candidates. Um, and it turned into um, basically a listening session for about a dozen bus drivers that were there that were talking about what they were going through. Um, and I think it is, we, we need to listen to the people who are on the ground, who are dealing with the situation and what they have been saying is that they do not have enough funding. And a a lot of folks push back on that and will say, um, it's not about money. It's about behavior issues. It's about discipline issues that are happening on these buses. Um, and to that, I respond, you know, you realize that some of these buses have four kids per two bus seat um, throughout the, for the full bus. The ratio of kids to adults on these buses is absolutely insane because of the number of routes they've had to condense to the number of drivers that they actually have. And um, so if, if you can imagine like a two-seater bus seat has four kids in it throughout the entire bus and there's only one adult there, I mean, it, the discipline issues are a symptom of the funding issues. And I, I think it's really, really important that we use that language to, to push back on that um, because th- this is not uh, something that can just be written off as just discipline. Absolutely not. No. And, and also, even if it is just a discipline issue, which it's not like you so eloquently said there, like the way that you solve that is still with more funding. It is with more bus monitors. It is with mm-hmm. better like it is with more, uh, you, you know, fewer you know, ratio of, of students to, to drivers, that sort of situation. And that's just not possible. Basically, we took the resources that we have uh, in Jefferson County for transportation that were not meeting our needs with the two start times. We stretched everything out. We, we tried to find as many efficiencies as, as we could. But now the situation is when one one prong of the situation breaks, the entire chain breaks, and we have ourselves a disaster, which is the situation we found ourselves in. Now, we've done some things to mitigate that. You know, There's a lot of things in place, hopefully, that we can use as medium to long-term solutions, but the only real long-term solution is better funding for transportation. Whenever people talk about funding for schools, too, they just talk about the funding for the education and understanding that transportation is its separate budget. That is something that's also very important to note that I think many people have missed. Um, Yeah, Uh, we did spend a whole episode on it, so go back and listen to it. You will hear these points and more. All right, so last thing I wanted to talk about this week um, is this Supreme Court, the Kentucky Supreme Court, hearing oral arguments this year about SB 1. 26. That is the bill, the law now that allowed defendants to move constitutionality cases outside of Franklin Circuit Court. Now, Kate, a little spoiler for the people listening, you know, you were like, this is the one thing I don't know as as much about. Now, I'll ask you, did you follow the Franklin District Court election last year with Judge Shepard? Yes, okay. I did. I did. So, so that issue with that case uh, the issue with that election is that, you know, Judge Shepard um, and, and the other judge there in, in Franklin uh, Franklin County um, have a reputation not really necessarily backed in reality of being, um, you know, liberal judges. Um, there's a lot of evidence that they definitely call it down the middle. Uh, it's based on the arguments in the case and the constitutionality of the things brought before them. But they certainly have a reputation as being at least more liberal than 
uh, judges in other parts of the state. Now, every constitutionality challenge uh, of a law in the state, if you say this is against the Kentucky Constitution, you sue the state, and the state sits in Frankfurt. So that court case goes to Franklin Circuit Court. And so the Republicans were tired of I guess being judged fairly, uh, they would say having a liberal <laughs> judge hear their case. Um, and so they basically wanted to create a way that they could get around the uh, Franklin Circuit Court. So they passed this law, SB 126, that allowed them to move constitutionality cases outside of Franklin County. Um, there are a lot of constitutional issues with this. It's a random selection of where you go, um, and you cannot arbitrarily choose your court. Uh, that's against the rule, uh, the rules uh, against the Constitution. You have to. There has to be a, a structure. There has to be something real behind it. And, and that was what this court case was kind of about. Um, according to the write-up in the Courier Journal, most of the justices seemed skeptical of the argument that the venue change proponents said. Uh, which was that they were creating a level playing field and felt like the selection process was arbitrary. That's the word um, that's in the Constitution. So you can't you can't just have an arbitrary selection of your court. Um, it seems as about as arbitrary as it get gets. So th they seem very skeptical of this law. They were skeptical of the law before it. I think it was. I don't want to give a number, but but this is something that has been tried. It has not <laughs> met any success in the courts, um, even though the Republicans have been trying for a long time to get things moved out of Franklin Circuit Court. So this this thing has yeah. to be yeah this thing has to be decided before other court cases like the one about the Pesomatic gray machines and about the KEA's challenge to payroll deduction can be decided in the Supreme Court. So this one kind of has to go first, which is why we're talking about it first. And then these other court cases that we've been tracking will find their way to the Supreme Court after a while. Did I, did I do a good enough job of explaining why this is important? Yeah. All right. I, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I feel a parallel to what Ohio Republicans tried to do with like changing the rules of the game, right? Like you don't like what these, you know, if there's no ethics uh, violations or any issues with these judges that are sitting on the in Franklin Circuit Court, like there's no actual violation or dereliction of duty here. You just don't like the way that they rule, so you want to change where you're actually trying cases. Um, it feels very, uh, very Ohio GOP issue Cap one. <laughs> capricious, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that bill that that uh, was a, a, a special election in Ohio to change the law about how the Constitution can be amended. Very much in the same vein as this, which is like we don't like the rules. Let's change the rules. Um, they lost. I have a feeling that the um, the court case here is going to lose as well. All right. Well, that's what we had to talk about today. Kate Turner, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It was an honor uh, having me back anytime. Absolutely. All right. If you want to find us, you can do so on X <laughs> or Twitter at my old KY pod and Facebook at the same name. Um, you can listen at the podcast app of your choice. Um, we have a newsletter, kind of. Uh, it's at tinyletter.com slash newsletter, And you can subscribe to our Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Please do that. It helps us defray the cost of bringing the show to you. And, you know, we work really hard on it. So, you know, pay us some money. If you don't want to, that's fine, too. Keep listening. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.